is uh, Ed Chapa. I'm a um, professor and, and head of comparative media studies writing. And uh, it's, oh, there he is. I knew if I started, <laughs> I, knew, I knew if I started to talk and through the introduction that Ethan would walk in. So welcome, join us. Um, and it's my pleasure to introduce our, our speaker for this week. And I, I just want to kind of tell them the story of how this happened because it sort of shows you how academe works in many situations. But I was in uh, Tokyo this summer for a conference on argumentation. And uh, I was looking at the different panels and the, the different papers and I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And I, I happened to witness Allison's uh, paper talking about uh, mobile phones in Mongolia and voting and I thought, this is really MIT-ish. And so there are people here who would be interested in this uh, material. And so then we started talking and it turns out that we know people who, or she knows people and have studied with people who I've known for years, many, many, many years. And uh, uh, so let me segue from that to uh, the point of tonight's uh, gathering. Uh, Allison got her PhD at the University of Pittsburgh in communication. Who was your advisor? Was Gordon Mitchell. Gordon Mitchell, who I knew when he was a senior in high school, uh, was her PhD advisor. And um, okay, so yeah, I've really proven that how old I am. So, so and now <laughs> she is at Baruch. Well, I call it Baruch College, but it's technically City University of New York, comma Baruch, Baruch College. Yes. And you can see her topic up there. So I'm not going to read it. I'll turn the room over to you. Great. Thank you, and thank you for having me. In today's discussion, I'll be thinking about the research that I do with pastoral and nomadic communities, specifically focusing on communities that are in Mongolia and Tanzania. But I also do research in China and Kenya, so if you'd like to talk about that, we can go to that during the questioning period. And throughout the lecture, I wasn't quite sure where your interest would lie, so I'll kind of hint at other topics that we could discuss in the questioning period. But my plan is, to start off thinking about pastoral nomadic communities, what makes them special, where they live, and why I come to study them. Then I'll be thinking about the difficulties that these communities frequently face, particularly in a development context in regarding communication technologies and the ways that they're trying to communicate with national and international governments. Then I'll be examining two case studies. I'll look at the way that Maasai communities in Tanzania are using YouTube videos and Twitter feeds in an attempt to reach out to their national government, but also to gain the support of international supporters. And then I'll look at a case study from Mongolia, where in 2015, the national government held a text message referendum, where every citizen was able to vote on national policy by sending a text message. The vote itself didn't go very well, but it tells us a lot about the capabilities of reaching these types of communities. And then we'll have lots of time for presumably food, but also questions if you have any. So the communities I study are known as pastoral nomadic communities, but many of these communities identify themselves as herders. That difference is important to keep in mind because pastoral nomadic communities is a division that was produced by anthropologists to classify and differentiate the ways that these communities live and move. They live with large herds, primarily of cattle, sheep, goats, camels, yaks, Horses, yes, and I wrote them all down. <laughs> so they move with all these different animals. Not every herder has every type of animal. Many families choose to focus only on one type of animal, and in some regions it's only practical to have one or two different types. But they, by definition, have a large herd, and they move with that herd several times throughout the year. 
as they're moving about, they're frequently moving with their house. And this produces a problem for the community because sometimes it's difficult for them to prove where they traditionally live because there's no permanent structure there. It's really difficult in places like where Mon Mongolia, where there's been a historic mm, taboo, but a really strong taboo, sometimes even a law against even scratching the surface of the ground. Because it's only about 12 to 16 centimeters in some of these places, and their animals are dependent on eating the grass, such as you see here. So if you scratch the ground to put like uh, post holes, or to set up a fence, or to create any other type of structure, you're destroying the places where your animals like, live. So they don't do that. When surveyors come though, they see the land and they're like, oh, it's empty, right? And we could use this land better. Pastoral nomadic communities, though, they come back a couple of months later, sometimes a year later, and they suddenly find the land which they thought was theirs and to which they claim that they have a historic tenure for is occupied by something else. The term that the government is using in this context is usually terra nullis, which is the presumption of empty land or wasted land. It happens in two ways, both when you get a photograph like this, such as I took in Kenya in 2012, where you have a family herding um, cattle in the background, but you don't actually have industry happening, you don't have farming happening, you don't have all the indicators of development that a government typically would look for. Based on images like this, the Kenyan government and the British colonial government before them have said that the Maasai are wasting this land. It could be better used in other circumstances. The picture that I had at the beginning of today's lecture is from Mongolia, where we see Ternolis in a different way, where the step is simply empty. Right? So there's not a question if it's wasted or not, it's just presumed not to be populated. This produces a huge problem for pastoral nomadic communities, though, that need that land to be empty for a period of time so that the grass can regrow, so that when their animals come back, they'll be fodder for those animals. Now, the communities that I study are highlighted somewhat in the area on this map, which I made way before I learned how to use GIS. So I'm sorry about the, the old school nature of the map, but I, I think it helps us to think through the areas that I'm thinking about. There also are pastoral nomadic communities in other parts of the world, but the literature base that I'm working from primarily makes comparisons between these regions, between East Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia, and sometimes the northern part of Scandinavia where the Sami who are reindeer herders live. Sometimes they're included and sometimes they're excluded. In this literature, pastoral nomadic communities are identified as having three different types of problems. So I'll go through them. The first problem that they're identified as having is a presumption of poverty. Organizations such as the World Bank produce um, reports which feature images such as this one, where we see the kid sad, depressed, dirty, right? This is a forlorn child sitting on top of a fence, but that might not actually be the way that his family indicates what's going on in the community. The World Bank does rapid assessment, as do many other organizations, which indicate that these families do not have a lot of cash on hand and that they don't have large food stocks on hand. And based on that, they presume that the family isn't very wealthy. They also find that the family members frequently don't have jobs like factory jobs or schools that they go to, and so they identify that family members are not employed. The family, however, frequently has a very different interpretation of this. They say we have thousands of cattle or sheep or whatnot, right? They're living right now. It's a very liquid type of wealth, right? It's walking about. But should we need money, we quickly sell one of those animals. And should we need food, we quickly just go outside and eat one of those animals. Or if it's in the summer, we milk the animal and we eat that milk. So we're not having a food shortage and we don't have a monetary shortage, but we don't actually have cash on hand. 
But we have a clash that's happening between the ways that the nomadic families identify themselves as being wealthy and the ways that reports such as this identify them as being wealthy. And we think about it from an argumentative perspective, we also have a visual argument problem where we have images such as this appearing on the cover of documents because frequently they frame the way that we even read the document. This is a sad kid who I desperately want to help, but it might just be a kid who's tired because he's been running around all day and could be actually in a very good situation. The second problem that pastoral nomadic communities face is a presumption of settlement and development. Organizations frequently think of these communities as wanting to be settled. And the argument is frequently made that if the communities just had better access to education, or if they just had nicer homes, or if they had money to move into an apartment building, they obviously would do that because we ourselves would love to live in a nice apartment as opposed to a felt line tent. Evidence for that is drawn from pictures, such as this one that I took in southern Mongolia, where we have families that have moved into settled centers. But what's interesting in this picture is that you'll notice these houses here, which are Mongolian gares. Families are moving towards the city center, but they're moving with their nomadic tents, and they can just as easily pack up and leave. And political economists have noted periods of time when families such as this have packed up and left. When factories close, when schools close, when families want to migrate with their herds, they simply can bring together the whole family and leave town. Or, as frequently happens now in Mongolia, they can leave their kids in town with one adult member of the family or one adult neighbor, and then everyone else can go back to the fields and herd their animals. So this notion of settlement is quite difficult to negotiate because the people that are presuming it themselves would not want to live in this way, but many pastoral nomadic community members identify that they do. The third question, the one that's most visually appealing but difficult to overcome in an argumentative context, is that of a proleptic elegy. So we end up with pictures from books such as this. So Jimmy Nelson in 2000, I think it was 13, produces a wonderfully beautiful photographic book titled Before They Pass Away. And he goes and he photographs groups of people that he expects will disappear within our lifetime. This produces a huge problem for pastoral nomadic communities and everybody else that's featured in the book. Because every time they ask the government for a particular service or an international development organization to help them out, they're easily faced with the argument, well, why would we do that? Because you're not gonna be living like this in the near future. You're about to settle, so let's put our effort into that settlement or into that education, not into maintaining the traditional lifestyle, even though you're saying that you want it. Now, to study this argumentative format, I'm looking at the work of Patrick Bratlinger, who's a professor at Indiana University, and he studies the ways that proleptic elegies were used in the 1800s, when missionaries were going into Africa, predominantly European missionaries, going into Africa, and they're making lamentable statements. They're saying it's so sad that these wonderful cultures are about to disappear, but it's for the best because they'll convert to Christianity and then they'll have these wonderfully beautiful lives. In his text, he says that whether seen as antiquated or infantile, all savages were lost and misplaced in time. In contrast to their ancestors, of, sorry, in contrast to the ancestors of progressive races, modern savages were like dead branches of a tree born out of their due time. Now he argues that this happened during the colonial missionary period in Southern Africa, but I think it's also happening today when we speak about pastoral nomadic communities because we expect them soon to be gone. We see that in visual arguments such as Nelson's book, but we also see that in the rhetoric of the presidents and prime ministers of the countries that I'm studying. So we get an example of this from President Kikwete of Tanzania in 2005. And he states, 
We must abandon nomadic pastoralism, which makes the whole country pasture land. The cattle are bony and the pastoralists are sacks of skeletons. We cannot move forward with this type of pastoralism in the 21st century. This is a really clear statement of your community is about to no longer exist. Now he's not purging the community in a death bound sort of way, but he is heavily encouraging them to move off of their traditional lands into settlements, to put their kids into boarding schools, and to resume what he's identifying as a settled and developed way for all Tanzanians. He makes several of these statements during his presidential um, terms. We also have statements such as those being made by Prime Minister uh, Inkbire in 2008 of Mongolia, where he says, to survive, we Mongolians have to stop being nomads. Now, he's not quite as explicit as Kikwete, and we can talk about that during the questioning period, about how there is a difference in Mongolia, which is quite proud of its nomadic heritage, and Tanzania, which, at least with the current government administrations, are attempting to kind of smooth over and forget and to place that into a historical context. But we do have similar statements coming out of the governments in both of these case studies. And so my question is, it has multiple facets, but predominantly, how do pastoral nomadic communities overcome these difficulties? And in overcoming these difficulties, how do they try to reach out, not to the national government, which doesn't always seem to be supporting them, but to international advocates who might support them? Now, it seems like a good idea to be able to gain all of the support from all of your advocates and then put that pressure back on your national government. And we have long traditions in the United States of organizations like Amnesty International, signing petitions and then sending those to national governments. But the availability of new media and social media changes the ways in which pastoral nomadic communities are able to leverage those arguments for themselves. We have a lot of literature in the West about the ways that new and social media are changing the ways that citizens participate in democracy. And in thinking about that, I'm thinking about Habermas's study of public argument and its emancipatory potential. I'm thinking about Henry Jenkins' analysis of participatory culture and its place in new and social media. And I'm also thinking about Beaker's calls for technology to broaden the public sphere. But in each of those studies, I'm thinking about how does this work for rural people? And particularly, how does it work for mobile rural people? I'm also thinking about the placement of pastoral nomadic communities within a science technology society context where they're frequently absent. And if they are included, it's just in like one short little sentence. For example, Mumford only speaks to Tibetans once and he says that Tibetans never got beyond the technology of a prayer wheel. And then he goes on to talk about European technologies. Just a little footnote as if there's not much more to talk about. And this presumption of a lack of technology perhaps makes it even more difficult for pastoral nomads to claim that they know what they're doing and they know how to reasonably use this technology in their deliberations. But there are some scholars that are looking into this, particularly Don Chatty, who's at the University of Oxford, is studying Bedouin communities. And she says that the once clear lines between nomads and settled people are becoming increasingly blurred. And she says that they're becoming blurred both because of the human migrations between both settled and nomadic communities, but also because these forms of technologies are helping these communities to come together to reach each other in real time and understand each other in different ways and perhaps produce better arguments or at least better understandings of how those arguments are framed. So to think about that blurring that's happening, I'm first going to think about the Maasai case study in Tanzania, and then I'm going to think about the case study in Mongolia with Mongolians. First, I'm gonna drink some water. <laughs> so, the Maasai. The Maasai live in Kenya and Tanzania. I'll only be thinking about Tanzania because it makes the conversation much simpler, but many of these problems also are apparent in Kenya. In Tanzania, 
if you travel there, which you all should, it's a fantastic country, you see many billboards such as this one, in, um, which was photographed in 2009, which says Mutando Boro Popete Olipo, which means better network wherever you are. And they really mean it. They mean that even in the foothills of Mount Kilimanjaro, you can have excellent Wi-Fi access and excellent cellular access. And one of the reasons for this is because tourists come to this region, lots and lots of them, and Tanzania is making a large percent of its national um, income based on tourism. And tourism, like sending tweets home, they like sending photographs, they like sending videos. And so there's been a heavy investment in making sure that the infrastructure is set up in this region. Also, the International Criminal Court has a base in Arusha, so they have a large communication infrastructure there as well. By 2005, 97% of Tanzanians had access to at least one cell phone. Right? That's more than 10 years ago. So we have an entire generation of citizens who have grown up with access to at least one cell phone and now have access to several of them. And I'll think about that question of several in just a moment. This has enabled cross-border communication, so those Maasai individuals in Tanzania can easily speak to their relatives and friends in Kenya, but it also enables them to speak to people internationally and around the world. I have friends who have SIM cards from Kenya that keep using them in the United States because it's cheaper to pay for the international rate with that than it is to sign up for an American cell phone plan. It is really cheap to send text messages and um, emails and videos from these communities. And it's cheap because it's subsidized by the national government, which wants to firmly establish this technological infrastructure. So it advantages even communities such as the Maasai, who are among the poorest of the Tanzanians. But there's a problem in this. There's a problem that predominantly when Western scholars do research in Tanzania, they don't see this technological in innovation. So the only article that I could find when I was writing my dissertation, which ended in 2014, so it's reasonably recent, was an article written in 2012, which talked about the use of photo voice as a way to introduce Maasai women to technology. All of it. So they could learn how to use technology and then they could produce some pictures. So they were printed out for them. They shared them with each other. And then they were able to express their ideas and their opinions and their hopes for education. That was problematic first and that it didn't see the other types of ways that these communities were using technology. But it was also problematic in its conclusion because every time an individual stated, well, this, you know, I want to go to school, the authors of the articles write in, and this means that they want to be settled, and this means that they want to move beyond their pastoral nomadic past. That's not necessarily what the community members are saying, but it is what's appearing in some of this research, and it produces an extra burden for these communities who want to establish that they're happy where they are. These communities have a lot of access to technology, not only because the Tanzanian government has invested so heavily in this infrastructure, but also because many of them are participating in conservation projects. So this photograph, which I did not take, is from the Living with Lions project. And in this, we have a research assistant who appears to be a Maasai gentleman who's participating in an RFID tag program, right? So they've gone around and they've tagged all the lions with the collars that let you track where they are. This was funded by international researchers, but they hired Mongolian community members to be the research assistants who stand in the fields and they track where the lions go. This project, like all projects, eventually comes to an end or gets new technology to replace what we see the gentleman using here. That technology, which is being replaced, sometimes it's broken and the community needs to fix it. Sometimes it works perfectly fine, but the researchers that brought it don't necessarily need to take it home. From this, we have a large amount of technology that's remaining within the Maasai community and other communities in this region, which they're then able to purpose and repurpose for different ways. 
This produces something like a technological riptide, right? Where the technology is reappearing in new and wonderful different ways. It reappears in different ways from people having cell phone cameras, really advanced cameras amongst a community that probably couldn't afford them. Two instances, like when I did my field research in Kenya, I got to ride around in a USAID truck, which the American government left there because it was easier to leave it at the University of Narok than it was to ship it out somewhere else. So should I be able to drive a British constructed truck which shifts on the wrong side for me? Then I would have had my own truck, but I had to hire someone to drive it for me. So I am not that well coordinated. But the point is, is that all of this technology is there. And so my question became, what are communities doing with this technology? They're using it, but what purposes are they using it for? And the central argument that I kept coming back to was the question of land. Because for these communities, which are heavily dependent on their herds, they're also heavily dependent on having access to land upon which those herds can graze. For the Maasai, the question of land is really important because we have maps such as this one, which Maasai advocates have produced based on historic records and oral histories, which map out what they claim were traditional Maasai lands. We see that these range through Kenya and Tanzania, and it's a huge swath of land. During the colonial period, mostly run by the British, but in Tanzania it was the Germans until the Treaty of Versailles, most of the land was taken away from the Maasai community using the argument of Tara Nolis, which stated that other people could better use this land, predominantly for farming, but sometimes ironically also for herding sheep, which is what the Maasai were trying to do in the first place. But we won't get into that unless you want to in the question period. The Maasai lost over 90% of their land during this period of time. Many of the times that they lost this land, they lost it by treaty negotiation, though it's unclear who from the Maasai community signed those treaties with the British. In 1963 and 1964, these countries became independent from the British, and some Maasai advocates thought that they were going to get the land back because they had negotiated with the British as an independent group. And the British originally said that they would give the land back to the, to the groups that they had negotiated with. That's not what happened. Right? This land was divided between Kenya and Tanzania, for many reasons, but one of the largest reasons was that conservation parks were being established at the same period of time, and they were bringing in a lot of money to Kenya and Tanzania. Those countries were not about to lose one of their largest money makers at the moment of independence. And the Maasai, although they were quite wealthy in land, originally before the colonial period, had lost 90% of it, so they're shrunk into smaller and smaller areas, and so it was difficult for them to make the argument to get all of that land back, particularly in the northern part, which had become the capital of Nairobi. It was unlikely that that was going to go back. But the Maasai kept pressing these arguments of this is our land and we need to have it back. They also were continuously pressing to keep the land which they currently had. And they're still making those arguments, particularly in northern Tanzania. In northern Tanzania, which is the area that we can see here, we have the Serengeti and the Norongoro National Parks. And we have different rules about how the Maasai can live in those parks and strict prohibitions against hunting in those parks. But we know that lots of people that go on safari really like to shoot animals and to bring them back home. There's a large market for establishing independent, independent hunting safari camps on the outskirts of these parks, right? So you can shoot your lion or your tiger or whatever you wanna shoot, not technically in the Serengeti, but right next door to it. The Tanzanian government does not allow for foreigners to own land, but they do allow you to rent it for 99 years. So there had been a number of com companies that were trying to rent land from the Tanzanian government to set up these types of safari camps, particularly those that allow for hunting. 
In this, we see a huge risk to the Maasai people about losing their lands in northern Tanzania. And we start to see the types of questions that I was asking regarding social media. So on the left-hand side, we have a quote that was made by the um, one of the speakers from OBC, which was setting up hunting camps, particularly for Arab corporations. And he gave an interview with IPP Media, which is based in East Africa. I'll read it because we're recording it, I guess. It says, a seemingly annoyed mole said, OBC, as other multinational hunting companies, operates on Tanzania soil under a five-year renewed recession agreement. Quote, honestly, there's no conflict whatsoever in the Loliendo area, save for social media. OBC chiefs noted, adding um, that it's high time for scribes to write their own story. OBC produced this narrative continuously that the local Maasai community loved them because they were bringing in jobs, they were giving them money, they, were, they had more land that they knew what to do with. They said that the only places that there were problems were international interlopers who were coming in, making a mountain out of a molehill, making it seem like there was a problem when there really wasn't, and then using social media to propagate these types of rumors. Survival International, which is an international development organization which speaks on behalf of or, um, communities such as the Maasai, began to make reports in 2013, which were titled Tanzania Land Grab Could Spell the End of Maasai and the Serengeti, which was reporting about the types of land grabs that OBC was particular, potentially participating in. OBC, however, said, that's not what's going on. You're an international organization. We need the Maasai to speak for themselves. It seemed like that ended the discussion, but if you started searching YouTube at that time, you began to find that the Maasai were indeed speaking for themselves and were trying to invent new ways where they could very definitely prove that it was they themselves who were speaking, producing the video and distributing the video themselves. So there was no question of authenticity in that. They were also working really hard to show themselves in the land which they were appropriately using in an attempt to overcome this rhetorical trope of terra nullis. So the first video that I found, which really excited me, was produced in 2012. It was the Norangoro Conservation Area Food Crisis, and it was produced during this debate when OBC is saying there's not a problem and the Messiah saying we've got a severe problem. At this moment, the Messiah are facing a famine, which the government and international development organizations say isn't happening. They're saying that we don't have enough food to feed our kids, and because we don't have enough food, we're feeding them this grain that you sent us as reserves for our cattle. Many organizations said that's not happening. If we look at your kids, they've actually got like pretty rounded bellies. They look like they're pretty well fed, which produces a number of problems. So this long video goes through interviews with community members, and then it goes to the hospital where they talk about how kids get distended bellies when they're not nourished. It talks about the deaths that the communities are reaching. But the very short image that I'd like to show you identifies the ways that the community, even in a still shot, are trying to overcome these multiple argumentative frameworks that they're being pressed up against. So here we have a Maasai woman speaking directly who says, we're not lying. She says, we are telling the truth. Let the woman from Singda bring the brand for you to see. And she calls forth from the audience another woman who brings forward a plastic bag that's filled with pounded bran that her kids have been eating. And you look at it, you're like, I wouldn't feed that to my cattle, to my horses. And the woman gives a testimony about how her kids have been eating this food and it makes them really sick. And she knows that her kids will die if they keep eating this. But what is she supposed to do? Like, it's better for them to eat the brand for a few days and then maybe get some proper food than to let them die today when there is this brand that at least will make them feel full. So she explains to us this really difficult situation. 
This video is also very carefully constructed. We have Maasai community members speaking in the Ma language, but we also have translations that are being done by the Maasai community, and they're quite clear about having done those translations themselves. And we have it distributed in, um, through YouTube, which explains to us all of the visual signals that we're seeing in this video in an attempt to overcome this rumor that is only social media and non-Maasai people that are making up these arguments. So this is the first video that I came across, but it is certainly not the only video. In producing this, oh sorry, in producing this first video, we see a movement and a momentum amongst the Maasai community in the ways that individuals paid attention to that first video, the type of attention that they're starting to get, and the type of pressure that's being pushed on their national government. So in 2003, the Maasai were trying to make these same arguments. They had a group of people, these Maasai elders, who went to go speak with the Tanzanian president and prime minister. They brought a letter of all of their complaints. They produced it to the secretary, and they waited for their appointment with the government officials. They waited for a week, and then they waited for two weeks, and then they ran out of money and had to go home because they didn't have any money to stay in Dar es Salaam any longer. They went home, and they reported back, like, we tried, but there's little that we can do to actually get to these government officials. We then have, in 2012, almost a generational shift where this woman is speaking from the field amongst her community members, making almost the same arguments, but being able to distribute them much quicker. She's distributing them to Europe, to South America, to other parts of Africa, to Central Asia, to people that are watching these videos. And there's more and more people watching these videos because they're interested in the region, both because they're about to go on safari there, or because they've met Maasai individuals when they were there on safari and they're interested in these questions, or simply because the Maasai become an iconic figure in many Western connotations, such as being on the cover of Nelson's book. So some people just simply like watching videos of the Maasai. For whatever reason, these videos are getting a lot of attention and they prompt the production of more and more videos. So we see organizations such as Pingos, which is the Pastoral Indigenous NGO Forum, which exists in, um, in Arusha, Tanzania, which begin to combat conservationist arguments. Conservationists are saying the Maasai are overgrazing. They're destroying all the water sources and they're destroying the environment. It would be better in a conservation context to move them somewhere else and to make sure that we have this pure, pristine place of the Serengeti available in perpetuity for these animals. We have a Maasai community member saying that the livestock are not the reason that the river dried up. And the video goes on to show the dam that tour companies have set up so that they can fill things like swimming pools in essentially a desert. And so from that, we have different types of evidence that begin to appear. However, the community was faced with arguments about um, paternalism and questions about why is it only men that are speaking? And so we begin to see a number of videos which are also produced only by women trying to make these same types of arguments. So Oslo produces a video through Insight Share, which is an organization that goes to communities that are facing these types of problems and helps them film their problems and produce their own videos. And in this, we have a group of Maasai women Speaking directly to this question, they say, many people, I'm sorry, many have spoken for us, now we speak for ourselves. And in this 15 minute video, they go on to interview Maasai women who are speaking for themselves about the problems that they have faced and also the ways that they would like to be represented. Some of the ways they speak about this is that they say that writing on machines is not enough. When you tell us what you want to do, it must be a visible and binding document. And this interview is fascinating because they're reflecting on the things that Kikwete, the president of Tanzania at that time, is saying on Twitter. 
right? So he's saying this isn't happening, not a problem, and they're saying actually you can't just say that on social media. We want to see the binding document and the legal thing which we can take to court if it actually continues to occur. And we'll look at his tweet in just a second. The last part of this video I'd like to highlight is we have two young ladies saying, I'm appealing to the entire world, push our government to guarantee, and the next frame says contract. In this, they're very clear about the mobility of these videos, who the anticipate is watching them, and the power that the international audience has. All of these videos continuously put pressure on the Tanzanian national government because they're now getting phone calls. They're now getting people who are choosing to go on safari somewhere else. They're now getting questions from international government organizations. Kikwete takes to Twitter increasingly, but in one of those tweets, he says, there's never been, nor will there ever be a plan by the government of Tanzania to evict the Maasai from their ancestral land. We can talk about the factual basis of this statement in the questioning period and for like days on end, if you would like to, because there is a lot of evidence proving that there actually has been plans by the government, such as a statement I showed you at the beginning of my talk to remove the Maasai from their traditional land. But what's interesting is that there has been so much pressure from things such as these videos that Kikwete has had to take to Twitter to defend the national government and say that we're not abusing the Maasai in this particular way. So he makes this defense. The Maasai, however, keep pressing beyond that. They take their videos, especially the Oshla video, the last one that I showed you clips of, and they take it to the European Parliament in 2014. They ask the European Parliament and the United Nations to investigate. And the United Nations representative continuously sends letters. You can read them. They're increasingly sad, asking the government to give her some sort of certification that they're not doing what the Maasai claim is doing. And the, the lady that writes them on the top of each memo, which you can download, says no response, letter sent again, no response, letter sent again. They're continuously going through these motions that they're supposed to do by official channels. So in 2015, the European Parliament passes a joint resolution on land grabs, specifically focusing on the Tanzanian region of Loliendo. They pass this two days after they've watched the YouTube videos that I've just shown you. It is the YouTube videos which are not the only piece of evidence, but are a critical piece of evidence, which allowed the Maasai to work beyond the region that they're in to reach an organization which, say what you will about the European Union or the European Parliament, has a lot of power in international decision-making, much more than a few small Maasai community members could have. The European Parliament is asking for a lot of things. First, they're asking for proof that no one's getting evicted, and that proof is not forthcoming because it probably doesn't exist. But they're also asking for the Tanzanian government to make future guarantees that the Maasai will be um, invited into democratic deliberations. The Tanzanian government, however, says, well, it's difficult. They're pastoral nomads. They're just nomads. They move around. We don't really know where they are. It's hard to find them. We set up national polling locations, so they vote every five years in Tanzania's government, but it's hard to find them in other contexts. Because of this presumed difficulty, I'd like to now think about the second case study. The second case study that I'll be thinking about happens in Mongolia, and the context of Mongolia is a little bit different, but there still are critical questions of land going on Mongolia. They don't have a colonial history, such as Tanzania does, but they still have herders, which are facing many of the same difficulties. In this community, we have questions about how the national government should reach pastoralists and how they can continuously reach pastoralists. So I'll be looking at the example from 2015, when every Mongolian was sent a text message and asked to text back their vote to the national government about what to do with mining funding. 
So in Mongolia, we have a wonderful technological infrastructure. There are not quite 3 million people that live in Mongolia, yet there are 3.2 million SIM cards actively in use in Mongolia. And this happens for several reasons. It happens first because SIM cards are ridiculously cheap, but it also happens because a competition between multiple cell phone companies regarding their coverage, but also their rates and their plans, and if you're sharing with somebody else, and the types of cell phones that Mongolians are using. So when I'm in Mongolia, I use like the type of Nokia brick phone that I had in the United States in 2001. It's like blue, it's small. The one in Mongolia I use is probably not even a real Nokia, but it's really easy to fix, and it has multiple slots for multiple SIM cards, so I can slide them in, right? From that, we have lots of cell phones working, and we have a 120% saturation rate in Mongolia of cell phone access. This is huge. I just got a review back from an article that had it circled, and the editor said, I think that you made a typo when you meant 20%. And I was like, no, I actually mean 120%. And it's phenomenal, because when we look at development indicators, Mongolia is not that high ranking, but it has 120% cell phone um, saturation rate, where the rest of the world kind of holds stable around 80%. Additionally, 2.2 million of those cell phone users have 3G access continuously throughout Mongolia. So while I used to be able to go to Mongolia and be blissfully free from any sort of obligation, now wherever I am, I'm able to get my text messages, I'm able to get my email, and yeah. You are no longer as distant as you might seem. And one of the ways that you're no longer as distant, although you are moving from place to place, is that the Mongolian government, with assistance from the World Bank and Hossbank, which is one of the largest banks in Mongolia, have funded an e-Mongolia program, but also a solar panel program. So you see many gears like this, although this is a quite nice one, you see some more rundown ones, where families have set up one or multiple solar panels outside of their gear. Mongolia has fantastic sunshine, and while a solar panel can't run your entire house, if your entire house is a six foot diameter circular tent, it can provide a lot of power for that house. It can provide a light, which you can use at night, and it can provide enough power to charge something like an old school Nokia cell phone. So with this, we have herders, even though they live far away, are able to use their phones without being attached to the electrical grid. And we know that they're using them a lot. Herder families are sending an estimated 4,000 minutes of calls per month and 3,600 text messages per month, which means that they're spending about like two hours a day on the phone, which is a lot of information being exchanged. Now, some of this information is about commodity prices. So now you can get a better price when you're selling off your cattle or your sheep. Some of it is educational welfare. So we have teachers that call home and they tell you how your kid is behaving or not behaving in boarding school. And some of it's for medical services. So you can call the hospital and they'll send a doctor on a motorcycle or they'll give you advice about what to do in a critical emergency situation. But we also have a lot of rapidly developing political discussion, which is what I would like to focus on in today's discussion. The way that I'm focusing on this is again a question of land. This land is not being lost for conservation, though that's going on a little bit in Mongolia, but it's primarily being lost due to mining. There are a lot of mining projects in Mongolia, particularly those in the southern Gobi, the largest of which is Oyantogoy, which translates to Turquoise Hill. This is one of the world's largest untapped deposits of gold and copper. It's gradually being tapped. But to tap this deposit, the Mongolian government has at times allowed for open pit mining, which if you have a herd of horses moving across the land and then an open pit mine, the two cannot exist at the same period of time. Right? You have to make a decision. Will you let your families keep herding on this space or will you open it up to mining? 
or they use flash extraction, which I do not know much about, but I do know it takes a lot of water to push through a mine. And frequently when it comes out, it's not properly purified. So you have a lot of the water in this region that's being polluted by heavy minerals, most frequently by arsenic. And you can see the type of arsenic poisoning that families are getting by the blue splotches that are happening on their hands and feet, and also by the increasing rates of mental retardation amongst kids under five, which apparently is one of the indicators of arsenic poisoning in this region. So families are very well aware when they see their land beginning to disappear, but also when they find that their water is beginning to have these various problems. The national population is also quite aware that there is a lot of money in this. If you're extracting huge amounts of gold and copper, there's questions about taxation, questions about proper representation of who determines that taxation, and questions about where that's going. Right? Because if you notice, these are right on the border with China. And there's been several highways that have been built directly from China to the mines and back out, which Mongolians suspect means that the minerals are quickly going to leave the country. And they're suspicious if the money is going to stay in the country or not. Because of all of these different types of questions, there have been a lot of protests in Mongolia. I started doing work in 2004 in Mongolia, and I've seen protests every year since them in radical different ways. I'm a terrible photographer, but this person who works for the Jerusalem Post probably a professional photographer, took pictures of the protests that happened there in 2010, when we see a diversity of people protesting against the mines. Right? This is one of the things that's bringing together Mongolians from across the country and across generations who are upset about the ways that money is being expended, also about scratching the land. You remember I told you that there were ancient taboos against cutting the land even in the smallest way. An open pit mine is a huge violation of that. And there's also People are simply saying, we don't have the development to mine ourselves now. We're dependent on international conglomerations, particularly BHP Billiton and Ivanhoe Mines. Why not just leave the minerals in the ground where they're nice and safe? They're not going anywhere. Wait until our country is better developed, and then we can mine them and keep more of the resources for ourselves. All of these questions that come into play, each time Parliament meets, they opt for another option of what to do. It's caused a lot of instability. In Mongolia, international corporations are not amused when one parliamentarian assures them that the bill's going to go through, the mines are going to open, and then that parliamentarian is removed from office, another person comes in and they say all the deals are off. And then the next year they have to negotiate again, and then all those deals get cancelled again and again. So this has caused a lot of instability for the Mongolian market. It's also caused a lot of problems between the citizenry who either anticipate that their government official isn't representing them, or isn't representing them in the same way as the one that was there last year represented them. So the Mongolian government has been looking for ways to get the citizens to vote on what they want to happen with these mines. And in 2015, attention began to turn towards holding a national referendum on this particular question. Now, this wasn't really a new idea in Mongolia. Mongolia <laughs> held a revolutionary, literally, referendum in 1945 when they formally declared independence from China. Now, technically, from Mongolian textbooks, they were independent at the fall of the Qing Empire. But Sun Yat-sen said he would not go along with Mongolian independence. He couldn't because he would lose a lot of political capital unless there was a firm referendum in 1945 which indicated that Mongolians did not want to be part of China. So they had a referendum. This referendum is proudly recorded and declared in all Mongolian history textbooks, which you have to memorize in a very root and recall method and identify the year which it happened and why it happened. So this is the picture from my Mongolian history textbook, um, which was published in 2006. In this textbook, we learned that the referendum was held in 1945. There was lots of preparation for it backed by the USSR. So they educated everybody in the country about the referendum. They ensured that everybody showed up for the referendum 
on the proper day, and they helped herders who didn't know how to fill out the ballot properly fill out the ballot. From this, 100% of the population voted firmly for the referendum. Now, while there's questions about how they voted for that, and we can see here in the picture the type of assistance that was given. So it wasn't a blind balloting process. We do have a national narrative of we had a referendum in 1945, it was awesome, it helped us declare independence. Referendums are a very valid, democratic, and Mongolian thing. High schoolers have been memorizing it at least since 1991 with these history textbooks by this author began to be published. Building on that narrative, Prime Minister Seichenbillig goes on national television in 2015 and he announces that there will be a national referendum on this question of what to do with oil and toll mines. He doesn't announce the same type of educational process as happened in 1995. Instead, he gives one day of warning and then a three-day voting period. During that three-day voting period, the government will send out a text message. Everybody will have the opportunity to respond to it. And then he says, as long as the vote's carried out in a valid way, the government will act on the vote. Seems like a reasonably simple-ish process. Doesn't go so well. The first problem that we get is the vote comes out and it's sent out by text message, but we also have it reproduced in national newspapers and online, which is the image that you get at the top of the screen. The question translated into English is a little bit shaky, but it says together, let's choose our pathway of development for Mongolia in 2015 to 2016. One, set the price deciding approving Togoi and other big construction projects. Or two, set the price by reducing our spending and consumption and discipline the economy. Please send the number in front of your response to this number provided. Now, the wording's a little bit clunky because set the price is a particularly Mongolian connotation. Mongolia's currency is not international tender. Right, so all agreements are based on this comparative structure. Right, so they're setting the price both of their own currency, but also of agreeing to these situations. But when we look at this in an argumentative context, we begin to see lots of different problems. I'll only highlight one of them this evening because I anticipate that a lot of you aren't argumentation scholars, but I hope that it opens up the mental gates of all the different types of problems this could happen. And then I'll think about the ways that Mongolian individuals responded to this on forums like Twitter. The primary problem is that this is a false dilemma, right? The two options are not mutually exclusive. You could sign the Oyantogoi contract and you could sure up government spending to make sure we're not spending money on other things that we don't need. But in producing this type of ballot and this type of false dilemma contract or vote, we have what Thompson calls a false dilemma fallacy, right? So he's producing an argumentative construction, which is really important because it tells the voter how they should vote. We have a situation that's not mutually exclusive. There's no C option. But the second option has a little bit of a threat in it. Thomas would identify this as an intentional or an unintentional overemphasis on the negative consequences of the disjuncts. Let's look back to the way that the ballot's worded. The second one, set the price by reducing spending and consumption and discipline the economy. Many Mongolians reading this saw this as a threat. Okay, so they saw this as a threat, not only will rein in government spending, but from the way that it's raining, we also might rein in education spending. We might rein in the type of food that's being brought in, and we might rein in the ways that families are able to spend their money. Right? So if red, shorthand, you either A, could pass the oil and toilet contract as it exists, or B, you could starve. Okay? And in a country that has had several famines since the 1990s, the question of starvation is humorous, but not quite so humorous, right? Mongolians begin to reject this question 
but not necessarily the format of voting on their cell phone and not necessarily the format of being posed these types of questions. So I'll look at several of the responses that we get. Day one of voting. We begin to see parodies, particularly appearing on Twitter, of Mongolians resisting this type of voting and identifying this false dilemma. So we have uh, a Mongolian poster who says, quote, government solutions department, right? It's proposing a poll. And he asks, are they pushing or are they towing? And this is a really funny question because this year, if you haven't ever had the joy of studying or working in Central Asia or a post-USSR country, is a type of bus, it's a trolley bus that has an electrical circuit that runs along a grid that runs above the street, which usually fails, right? So the bus stalls out in the middle of the street. All the passengers on the bus have to get out. They run around, they push the back of the bus while the most limber passenger climbs on top of the bus and reconnects the part of the bus that attached to the power grid, right? So slightly dangerous, but it's humorous to watch. It happens a lot. And it points to the problems that the Mongolian state is having, right? Like our buses are failing in our national capital. Maybe we should pay attention to that. And also this question of a false dilemma, like are they pushing it or are they towing it? It doesn't really matter. The point is like the whole bus is broken. And there's people in the street doing something to this bus. So originally I thought like, oh, this is lovely. I'll do an analysis of this. But I wanted to see if this was getting reposted by other individuals. And instead, I found 300 and counting other types of parodies being produced by Mongolians making fun of this vote. And they range the whole gamut from other type of images to fart jokes, right? There's lots of parodies coming out during this period of voting. And we get them from lots of different individuals. We get them from doctors, from lawyers, from students. Mongolia has a real name policy for tweeters so we can identify who's posting these tweets. And so we quickly see all these types of parodies on day one. Day two, we get statements such as Eric F. is producing in English when he or she posts this. Sahin Bilic surveys 3 million people, 160,000 responded, 90% of the citizens resisted. This was a stupid question. And what I think is interesting in the English framing originally, this is not my translation, is that the tweeter is saying resisted. Right? They're not voting as an act of resistance. This is a very well-informed activity. Right? We can see on Twitter and through social media and other platforms, particularly in Facebook, that Mongolians both in the city and the countries that are well aware that this vote is going on and they are unpleased about it. Right? So we continuously see these types of statements. Right? We also begin to see a little bit of analysis, but in the longer paper that I'm publishing based on this that is not reported by the Western press, who's like, this is awesome. We're having a referendum. Mongolians are going to vote in support of the mines, and the mines are going to be stable and supported. So we have two completely different narratives, those amongst the Mongolian voting public and those amongst the Western media. So the results of this referendum, which the Mongolian government call, or the Mongolian press calls a flop, and the Western press calls a success. So 3 million Mongolians exist in the country, including kids who are not of voting age. 3.3 million active cell phones, um, SIM cards in the country. There were only 356,000 and some odd votes cast. Only 302,000 and some odd votes are counted. And the differentiation here is that if you sent multiple votes from the same SIM card, they didn't count them. And so we have evidence that maybe 54,000 <laughs> multiple votes were cast. Or we might have evidence that SIM cards from, say, political party members simply weren't counted. There's all sorts of questions about corruption that could go on here. And I've done oral history interviews with people that participated with these votes, and they are keyed into the possibility for corruption on this, because you can't buy an anonymous SIM card. 
in Mongolia. It takes a bit of paperwork. I have to give them my passport. I have to tell them where I live. I have to have Mongolian vouch for me sometimes. It's the same process for many Mongolians. So they know which SIM card belongs to which individual. And it'd be very easy to run a search for all Democratic Party members and decide like they're not going to vote in this particular election. There also were questions about who this vote was sent out to. Foreigners got a vote. Theoretically, they all got the text message just as well as Mongolians. Kids got a vote just as well as Mongolians. And even if you remove the SIM cards that are registered to kids, you still have the question of who's sending the response. Several of the interviews I did, I asked, well, did you vote? And I had a mother who told me, well, I tried to, but when I looked at the record, my kid had already voted, so I didn't do it. And I was like, how old is your kid? And she's like, she's two, do you want to meet my kid? And I'm like, oh. So we had our two-year-old vote, right? Which might have been one of those, those that counts or doesn't count, right? But there's no accountability built into this vote. From that lack of accountability, we still see a weird division in the votes. 56% of voters support the oil and toga contract, and 44% of voters do not support the oil and toga contract. And there hasn't been much analysis about these numbers in the Mongolian press. It was a pain trying to find anybody who spoke about it. It was almost as if they just ignored that the vote had happened, like, let's move on to some other stuff. But in the Western press, we find lots of mining journals who are reporting this as a success. The Mongolian people have spoken in support of Oyantogoy and the mine is going to go forward. So we have competing narratives, right? But it's interesting that both given authenticity to people, even pastoral nomads, being able to participate in this type of a vote. Now for this and many other reasons, we have a parliamentary election this year in 2016 in June, where Sakhambilik's party gets hugely voted out of office. The country votes 86% for the socialist government. This is the biggest vote for the socialist government in almost a decade. We have a huge voter turnout. So lots of people fully in support of Sakhambilik, or not Sakhambilik's party, right? He's here sulking in the blue in the corner. And citizens, when they're speaking about it, they're saying things like he didn't respect our opinions, right? We didn't see that reflected in the government. But when I was in Mongolia this summer to watch the election, I also was having a lot of difficulty finding discussions about the election by politicians on Facebook, on Twitter, and other places. It almost seemed as if Mongolian politicians were stepping back from that. They saw the ways that the referendum had not gone so well for Sakhambilik, that it was an attempt to use social media to its fullest potential and potentially was leading to him being voted out of office. And this was a predicted election far in advance. You could see that his priority was not gonna survive the election. We had politicians who were not registering Facebook accounts and were canceling the Facebook accounts that they had had since they were teenagers. We had politicians that didn't want to engage in Twitter-based debates, even though they did so in 2012. Citizens are still engaging, but politicians are becoming increasingly careful. And so the question that I have in thinking about the ways that pastoral nomadic communities in Mongolia are participating is what happens to them after this text message referendum? Right? Their politicians aren't reaching out through questions like the referendum, right? Nobody else has tweeted them asking these questions. But when you interview Mongolian pastoral nomadic herders, they know that they could be asked their opinion, right? They're gaining the expectation that they can call their local official and make various demands. That they can also call their national official and make demands. That they can make recordings of difficulties that they have in the region or in their homelands. And if they feel like mining projects are not going the way they should, they can also start making videos in the same way that Maasai community members are doing. So my argument is, is that even though the referendum itself was a flop, and it probably was, that 
it set an example which Mongolia is now stuck with and identifies one of the ways that pastoral nomadic communities can stay where they are, utilize the cell phone infrastructure that they have, and be able to use it to try to embrace this idea of democratic deliberation and participation throughout the country. We have the base of knowledge to talk about that within the West, particularly as we lead up to our own national election. Right? So applying that to situations like this, which are the most rural and the most mobile communities, might be enlightening to look back at things such as what Don Chatty is saying about the lines of distinction between rural and nomadic communities and settled communities are increasingly becoming blurred because we have these tools to be able to speak with each other. And from that, we might have the ability to better understand each other and to not produce these barriers such as the one that's pastoral nomadic communities face. So that's my talk for today. I'm very happy to take your questions, your concerns, criticism, whatever you have. Thank you. I'm going to bring up the lights and ask what they want to ask. Do you want the... Okay. Yes. Hi. Thank you so much. That was really um, engaging. Um, I, I wonder about the actual like network infrastructures themselves mm -hmm. and people's relationships to them and the decision-making process of like how um, these technologies get introduced um, and how much... I guess, like, who makes those decisions? Mm -hmm. um, if you want to speak to that a little bit. Sure. In, in either or both. Yeah, so I know the most about the Mongolian example, and I know that because I was trying to do oral histories of people that participated in this vote. It was tricky to find people. But what I did find was a lady in the Southern Gobi had participated on the planning committee. So she was in her 80s. She had been on this planning committee all throughout the socialist period. And she told me about the ways that the community members were making decisions based on this technology. She didn't know very much about cell phones, but she did know about the information grids that existed before that. Right? So one of the first things that they did was they highlighted the use of radio infrastructure. And they were using radio schools so that communities that didn't want to send their kids to, um, to boarding schools, which is like the only alternative when you have a very sparse out population, were given a radio to put in their house and the kids would listen to their, lecture, or sorry, their lectures and then they would push the button and like talk to their teacher on the microphone. The family also was able to have those radios and they could use them for other purposes, like to get weather reports and to call for emergencies and whatnot. And they were moving about the countryside with that. And she said that that set up the anticipation that families should have access to this information. But it's also interesting because when we look at Mongolia in a post-socialist context, and particularly in a post-Soviet context, it produced two-way communication in a way that doesn't exist in many other countries. So Mongolia also heavily invested in television infrastructure. Right? They have televisions of throughout the countryside, mostly in post offices, really early compared to other countries, particularly early compared to China. But those don't really allow for this two-way participation. And so because of that, even as Mongolian families got things like television, they still maintained their dependence on things like radio. And so she was saying that the cell phone infrastructure was very similar to radio infrastructure. The difficulty that I've been having, though, is finding somebody to speak to the infrastructure of these cell phones, particularly like questions about that. They're based on satellites. Like, what's the opinion about that basis on satellites? I, if you know someone that wants to speak to that, I would be very happy to know about it. The major telephone companies in Mongolia are hybrids. So they're Korean Mongolian hybrids, or Japanese Mongolian hybrids, or Russian Mongolian hybrid corporations. So they're based on those grids. But beyond that, it's hard to tell. So I'm really interested in your observation um, that the population in Tanzania 
was looking internationally for a political voice rather than locally. Yes. Um, and whether or not the European Parliament can do anything meaningful about Europe, mm -hmm. never mind whether they can do anything meaningful about Tanzania, right. is an open question. Mm -hmm. But it does suggest a real disenchantment with uh, the government in, in Dar if this is where they're yep. um, sort of turning their attentions. Both of these stories actually sound like stories of nomadic frustration with governments. Mm -hmm. Even in Mongolia, where you have a state essentially established around nomadism, mm -hmm. um, do you think that there's something about the relationship between nomads and the state that is particularly challenging for assertions of power? Do you feel like there's any particular reason why you would be seeing a turn to outside authorities rather than the state authorities? Mm. So that, that's kind of a two-part question. To the, the question of nomad versus the state, yes, I do. And so in some of my other work, I look at the um, metaphor of nomadology that's advanced by Deleuze and Guattari, and that despite the difficulties that they have in producing that metaphor, pulling from anthropological texts in a kind of a piecemeal sort of way, I think that it really well helps us to understand the place of contemporary nomadic communities, and that they can just pop up and then disappear. We have narratives from the USSR where nomadic communities, anthropologists would go out and try to study them, mm -hmm. particularly in the taiga, and they'd be like, yeah, come with us, not properly outfit them and just like leave the anthropologists to die in the cold, and then they would disappear <laughs> for another 50 years. Right? They didn't want the state to be recording them. Yeah, yeah. In Tanzania and Kenya, when I speak with um, health officials and school officials, they say that it's really difficult to get kids to declare citizenship in one country or another. It's really unimportant to them. Even for kids, if you ask them to sing the Tanzanian like, national song, they can stand up and do it. And you're like, okay, so now you've sung your national anthem. What's the importance of that? They're like, I don't know. And you're like, well, where are you from? And they'll say the particular Maasai location yeah. that they're from. But affiliation with the state isn't important to them until they need something from the government, like health services or school services or a passport in some sort of way. And they aren't getting very much from the government, so there's a lot of distrust. That distrust, particularly in the Maasai case, comes from the colonial period, but it also comes from the period when they emerge as an independent state. So Julius Nyerere is the first president of Tanzania, and he's got some stuff to say about Maasai people. He gives a really damage, or not him, his cultural affairs minister, gives a really damaging interview in Time magazine in the early 60s, where he says that the police and their officials have permission to forcibly shave the heads of Maasai men to give them baths because they're dirty and he pulls upon all this savage metaphors and he says that they can't present themselves in courts until they wear proper pants right and so he's on this active strike to strip away all of these indicators of their cultural identity and to put them in this firmly placed identity now tanzania has a huge project in the 1960s of developing a nation state right and they're really good at developing this tanzanian identity in a way that kenya can't and so because of that they're proud that they avoid a lot of the ethnic violence that kenya has had the Maasai are almost viewed as an embarrassment because they won't go along with that. So when I first started working at the University of Dar es Salaam, I would ask professors, I was like, oh, I'm gonna to go to Arusha and interview Maasai people. And they're like, yes, they're the ones that kept their traditions. I was like, I know, it's awesome, I'm gonna interview them. But then gradually, I'm like, oh, they're saying that as an insult, <laughs> right? Like they won't go along with the state. The USAID actually pulls out of Tanzania in the 1970s because they say that they won't go along with government policies from Tanzania that are so abhorrent towards Maasai people, and also towards other pastoral nomadic communities in the area. So the other problem, many problems, but one of the other problems that they have 
are organizations like Pingos, which is a pastoral, it's indigenous, not non-governmental organization. I really like the work that they do about tracking government violations and difficulties, but they say that they have a lot of problems because the Maasai have a long history of interaction with other pastoral nomadic communities and also hunter-gatherer communities and agricultural communities that live alongside those. Maasai warriors, which are young men, usually between like 18 and their 30s, steal cattle from other communities. Right? Like they're not loved and embraced by their neighbors in many contexts. Right? So even trying to bring together a group that identifies as pastoralists yep. right, is difficult. And so because of these divisions, both within the, the country right, and also against the government, looking internationally is one of the, the ways that they've gone. But also it deals with this colonial network, that they've been such a part with, um, with England. And there were a lot of British activists that were on the side of the Maasai, both to give them their land back and also these ethnic questions through the 60s, that it's almost like a natural direction for which mm -hmm. they would turn. Help. That's great. Yeah, thank you. Also, they go to boarding school and are fluent in English, which probably helps as well. Other questions? Concerns? Here's my concern, right, is that when I wrote this as my dissertation, I was studying argument, right, so I get my dissertation in argumentation theory. There's a little bit of argumentation theory in this, but not a lot, right, and continuously my question is that of what we would say an internal link, right, the connection between the Maasai and the Mongolian communities. Now, part of this connection is being made because historically anthropologists and political scientists that worked in East Africa started working in Mongolia when Mongolia became an independent country. It was like the new open frontier and it seemed interesting and they were anthropologically classified in the same way. And so when we look at comparative studies of pastoral nomadic communities, we find a lot between Maasai and Mongolia. So that kind of makes sense at that context. But like, what's your take on this transition from the Maasai to Mongolia? Yeah. Well, it goes back to the last question, which mm -hmm. is this different context where the Maasai actually sense of, um, I don't want to say nationalism, but the sense of, of, of identity is, mm -hmm. is one that's actually, with the Maasai, they are sort of in conflict with their neighbors, and so there is this sense of, you know, identity is, well, it has just dimensions to it that it doesn't seem like it has in Mongolia. Mm -hmm. There aren't the same issues of conflict with people in your midst. It's easier to be, for us all to be Mongolian mm -hmm. at the same time that there's not a competing narrative. But with your, I think mm, yeah, that based on what sense. you're saying, right. between whether I'm a, a nomad or whether I'm a Mongolian, mm -hmm. whereas obviously with people like the Maasai, there are these competing narratives. Yeah, definitely. I, I think part of the challenge in the case studies is Mongolia. Mm -hmm. right? So if we look at this notion of nomadism as being in some ways opposed to the settled state, mm -hmm. Mongolia is this really interesting exception in which there's still enormous fierce pride tied up with nomadism. Mm -hmm. My first trip to Ulaanbaatar, I happened to show up on the first nice week of spring and everyone had gone out to the Gare. Mm -hmm. And it was crazy. I would go to meetings that had been set up a month in advance and everyone was out <laughs> at the Gare and it was just sort of expected. I ended up mm -hmm. having to sort of extend my time by a week to actually meet people. Um, so it's very deeply ingrained, and I sort of mm -hmm. wonder a part of this is almost a need to think about what's it like in a state where nomads are the exception versus mm -hmm. a state where nomads are the rule. And Mongolia is probably transitional along mm -hmm. that, but 
it, it is, I think, very different than, as you just, I thought, very eloquently pointed out, Tanzania's extremely uncomfortable relationship Definitely, that makes sense. Yeah, and the other case study that I'm thinking through and dealing in with is a case study of China and yeah. Mongolians in Inner Mongolia, where the question of nomadism being the exceptional exception is quite clear. Because China has a white paper that comes out, um, which didn't come true, but they did claim that by 2015 there would be no more nomads in China. It was unclear where they were all planned to go, although there were apartment blocks being built that it seemed like they were supposed to we move into. there will be no more nomads. Yeah, that was pretty much the way that it was interpreted. And it's interesting in the case of Inner Mongolia, and the way that I'm a little bit hesitant to speak directly to it is the way that information is getting out. I could not go and do the types of interviews I do in Mongolia and Inner Mongolia. But there are organizations like the Southern Mongolian Information, um, Human Rights Information Center, which is based in New York, which are consistently getting updates via cell phone, via video tweet feeds, and via Twitter, and Facebook, and many other social media platforms every time something happens to herders in Mongolia. So you can go online and you can read about this narrative, but it's a little bit iffy because you can't actually go and like, verify it yourself. But it, it is a question, right, where they, they definitely are the exception. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes? Um. When you do case studies uh -huh. in Mongolia, uh, have you done any research uh, in Inner Mongolia? And did you see any difference differences between two areas? Yes. So I've been to Inner Mongolia many times. I've never formally done research there because getting the research permit would be quite difficult, although I have a good track for one at the moment. I was the director of the University of Pittsburgh's Mongolian Field Studies program for eight years. Um, and so I would take undergraduate students on the Trans-Siberian Railway. We would start in China and we would go to Beijing. And they would stop in Hohat, um, Inner Mongolia for a week and a half and visit with families and, and herders. And we were based at the University of Inner Mongolia. Working with them, the herding communities that they took me to and the types of expressions that they were making were radically different. So at least in the ways that the state is portraying nomads, it's quite different than the way that the state is portraying nomads in Mongolia. In Mongolia, they're very proud of this tradition. In China, and in Inner Mongolia, they're proud of Chinggis Khan. Right? They've incorporated him into this lineage of rulers of China, right? and particularly his grandson Kublai Khan, right? into these leaders of China. But they're not quite comfortable with the, the questions of nomadism. And they're not quite comfortable with citizens just like moving about through space. Right? So you find instances where citizens have gares that have a conga underneath them, which is like a cement platform, which is heated from below. So it's lovely to sleep on in the winter. But it also means that you've got to go back to that platform every year. Right? You also have families that have been moved into winter camps and summer camps, so they're made out of cinder blocks. And they have lovely corrals for the animals, but it's a gradual movement towards you can't just move anywhere. You must move to these settled locations. And we also have a number of protests that are happening in Inner Mongolia, some of which I've been present for, but again, I can't interview people that are participating in those. So there are a lot of differences. Inner Mongolia is a fascinating place to watch, particularly if you're thinking about ethnic politics in China, because while there are difficulties, it's a good bit more stable than the situation in Tibet and the situation in Xinjiang, which are having similar ethnic tensions, but they're not appearing in the same violent way in Mongolia as they are in other regions. So part of the work that I'm doing is um, with Oxford's Desert uh, Research Group. They have the Arid Lands Research Policy Group, which brings um, 
young people that come from pastoralist families for writing workshops in an attempt to get them to write about their own communities and to have first-person academic scholarship. They brought a number of people to Oxford, but then we also had a writing group in Mongolia, particularly for people that couldn't get visas to get to England but could make it to Mongolia. And so working with those scholars, there is a body of literature that's coming out of Inner Mongolia from Inner Mongolian scholars. But even they themselves say that they have a lot of difficulty because to become a scholar, they had to leave their community at a young age. They had to become fluent in Mandarin. They, they're so removed from their community that when they go back to do the interviews, they're, they're not quite an outsider, but they're pretty close. And so it produces a lot of difficulties. Yeah? So uh, for the Inner Mongolian case study yeah. that you were developing, do you think one of the main sort of roles that it can fill in sort of your comparison mm -hmm. is showing how these communities are using mobile media in circumstances where the government is openly adversarial, um, doing censorship, mm -hmm. you know, not just not fulfilling the needs of the communities, mm -hmm. but trying to suppress them, trying to force them to stop being. Yes, exactly. And so one of the instances that I'm looking at is that there was a protest um, in 2013, when a family decided that they were going to protest against coal trucks that were driving across the road, but the road was really a vast plain and it had like a track that was down the middle, which is important to remember. So the herders went out on their horses and they, they stood on front of that track, waiting for the trucks to come, and then they essentially had a roadblock. Right? The trucks, instead of stopping for that roadblock, slammed into it, killed the herder that was in the middle of it, and drug him and his skull for like a significant distance. Other members that are there are like quickly taking cell phone pictures of this and posting it online. So if you want to see a smashed skull, I can direct you to them, right? But they produce this rapid evidence, right? Which is there before the police come and file as a tra traffic violation, right? And the question of traffic violation is difficult because of an open space, right? It'd be very easy for the truck to go like half a meter around the horse and to keep going without losing much speed. This gets the attention of lots of inner Mongolians, but also advocates of Mongolia that live on the other side of the border and the Mongolian diaspora, which is much bigger than the country of Mongolia itself. You begin to see things like Mongolians posting songs um, that are identifying with this herder, with this protest movement. They quickly get banned and taken off the internet in China, but we can find them pretty easily. And in those songs, in particular, we find Mongolians that are inner Mongolians who are writing in Mandarin, who say, I don't know the Mongolian language. I've never been a herder myself. I am a herder and I am Mongolian. And so we see this emergence of ethnic identity, but also herding identity appear in the moment of these contestations. And from that, we get street protests in Hohat and throughout um, Inner Mongolia that happened throughout the entire spring. And we've continuously, every spring, seen more protests in the streets in Inner Mongolia. And part of that is perpetuated through these types of videos and footage that's happening online. So it seems like the evidence is there. Oh, the other thing that, that was difficult was that because the, the footage is taken, right, and someone goes up and they interview the truck driver, and he makes a really abhorrent statement where he says he doesn't care, right? The life of this, he says, smelly Mongolian is not worth the insurance damage that I did to my truck. Right? And so he has this interview which appears quickly on local television and then gets taken down, but is continuously reproduced to the point that the Chinese government has to put this man on trial and eventually sentences him to death. But the time period that it took for them to put him on trial and to lead to the sentence was so long that it seems as though it was this internet-based pressure that forced the state to act. Does that help answer your question? 
But the problem is I can't go and interview inner Mongolians about it. It would not go well for them or me. Other questions? All right, well, thank well, you very much for so coming. <laughs>